0: Welcome back to The Emily Show. If you were watching the Grammys like I did, hoping to see Jelly Roll win, you might have been surprised to see Lizzo. I sure was seeing her present an award, and I was like, hey, what's going on with those lawsuits? We're going to talk about that today because the judge granted her anti-slap motion in part, denied it in part, had some strong words for the defense attorneys. And you know, we love a good judicial ruling. And since we've been talking so much about special motions to strike or anti-slap motions, we're also going to check back in on what's going on with Leah Remini and Scientology, because the court put over their anti-slap hearing for yet another date, And there is more fighting going on about whether David Miscavige will be served properly or not. So there's a whole nother round of motions to quash service. He is really fighting to not be a part of this lawsuit. You know what I'm really fighting for? My everyday wellness. And a lot of that starts with having fast, easy dinners at home. And that is made possible because of Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for clean eating, and you can get 60% off plus 20% over the next two months with code 60EmilyBaker at greenchef.com slash 60EmilyBaker. Let's get in to today's episode. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Let's take a look at what's going on with the Leah Remini Scientology lawsuit first, and then we will get into the court's order and ruling in the Lizzo dancers lawsuit because Lizzo has been sued by a designer as well. So there are multiple Lizzo lawsuits going on, but today we're just taking up the suit that I covered uh, a number of months back now with regard to the three dancers that sued her. So we are taking a look at the January 19th, 2024 court order, and that is when the hearing on Scientology's special motion to strike, also called anti-slap motion, also by me sometimes just called slap motion because it's it's just easier to say, they went in for hearing on that day, and that hearing has been pushed to an additional other date. So let's take a look at what the court ruled. Nature of the proceedings. Case management conference hearing on special motion to strike under CCP section 425.16 anti-slap motion hearing on request for media coverage. So the court goes through first the media coverage requests. Um, The underground bunker and Megan Cooney had filed motions for media coverage. Kunif was not present, so it was taken off calendar. The underground bunker was allowed to tweet out the um, proceedings from the courtroom, but was not allowed to record audio or video of the proceedings. The anti-slap motion resumed. They had heard part of it another day, resumed it on the 19th. It says, council for the Church of Scientology addresses an issue of conduct by people in the audience, and the court makes no rulings. Court does admonish the audience of its expectations of their actions while in the courtroom. I don't know what happened in court, but um, the court, or at least counsel for Scientology, was not thrilled about whoever was in court. It sounds like court was busy that day, so it will be interesting to see what happens on the next court date It says, on the court's own motion, the hearing on special motion to strike, um, scheduled for 119, is continued to February 6th at 9.30 a.m., Department 49, Stanley Moss Courthouse. Plaintiff has leave to file any supplemental declarations as to paragraph 28 in the declaration of William Foreman on the narrow issue of how Defendant Religious Technology Center is linked to the Church of Scientology International plaintiff to electrically file and serve declarations no later than 4 p.m. on January 23rd, 2024. Defendants to electrically file and serve any written response no later than 4 p.m. January 30th, 2024. The court's own motion, the case management conference scheduled for the 19th is continued to February 6th. Notices waived, which means the attorneys were all in court and knew what was going on. So there is additional filings from Leah Remini showing the court or attempting to show the court how the Religious Technology Center, who is one of the defendants, is linked to the Church of Scientology for the purposes of this motion. Um, So when the court asks for more information, the hearings normally get put over, though the court has already heard some of the arguments with regard to this anti slap We will see what the court chooses to do after February 6th and go from there. In the meantime, there has been no shortage of filings from both parties in this case. One thing I can tell you for sure, I I don't give percentages on things. I don't normally speculate on how things are going to go. Here's what I can tell you for absolute certain in this Leah Remini Church of Scientology case. This is going to be expensive And voluminous litigation, even downloading all the documents is expensive because every other declaration is like 300 plus pages long. This is going to be so voluminous in documents. It It is going to go on and on and on. The fact that we're multiple motions in and multiple declarations in over whether the defendant's David Miscavige is going to be served or is going to be served by substitute service. The plaintiffs filed a 300 page declaration with all the things they have done to attempt to serve David Miscavige. So, we're going to talk a bit about that now in both David Miscavige's motions and the responses Leah Remini's side has filed. For a quick road so far, I covered this in the last podcast where I covered Scientology and this lawsuit talking about the efforts that have been made to serve David Miscavige at two locations owned by the Church of Scientology. And while the church says that he is the religious leader of the church, they say that those are not his places of business and he does not live there. So too bad, so sad. He has not been served. The court doesn't have jurisdiction over him. Leah Remini's side has been arguing that if you would like to tell us exactly where to serve him, we will. But otherwise, this works as substitute service of process because he is the CEO of um, the Religious Technology Center Institute, and he can be served there. This fight is ongoing because now they are seeking substitute service of process, meaning, okay, we didn't serve you personally, but you have essentially been served. And these are all the efforts that we've taken, and those apply under the code. And we're going to find out exactly how much money Leah Remini's side has spent just trying to serve David Miscavige. And if you guys want to go ahead and guess in the chat on YouTube where this is premiering, or come over to the comments and take a guess before I. Before I let you know, go ahead and guess how much they've spent trying to serve this man. What we're looking at first is the new motion from Miscavige trying to quash service of summons and subpoena. This includes multiple declarations. A declaration by Gary Sauter, Warren McShane, Lynn Farney, um, Frenick Paulo, Matthew Vernker, and Leonardo Chaparro. Those are... All of the declarations. We're not going to get in those in today's podcast because we've got a lot to cover, but here's the overriding argument that they are making. Mr. David Miscavige is the ecclesiastical leader of the Scientology, religion, and the chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center. If I said CEO, I was I was wrong. Chairman of the board, not CEO. Although RTC is a co-defendant, Mr. Miscavige has been named here individually, not as chairman of the board of RTC. Plaintiff is a former Church of Scientology parishioner. She was expelled from Scientology for serious misconduct. Ever since, plaintiff has made a career of publicly attacking her former religion and Mr. Miscavige personally. This lawsuit is just her latest effort to harass Mr. Miscavige. It goes on to say, plaintiff's prior insufficient attempts at service of Mr. Miscavige in this action are already the subject of a pending motion to quash. That motion is supposed to be heard on Valentine's Day. So we've got two motions a week apart, that are coming up in this case. The additional um, hearing on the anti-slap that's set for February 6th after this is recorded, but before it airs, and then another one set for Valentine's Day. Apparently realizing that her purported service was invalid, plaintiffs sent process servers to allegedly attempt to serve Mr. Miscavige at two additional locations, neither of which is Mr. Miscavige's home, nor usual place of business. Nevertheless, plaintiff filed a proof of service claiming to have served Cavage at his, quote, office or usual place of business. She has not done so. Again, the plaintiff in this case is arguing that if he is the chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center, serving him at the Religious Technology Center is his place of business. They say that the declarations signed by plaintiff's process server are false. Among other issues, the process server erroneously claims, so they're calling the process servers liars, erroneously claimed that one, the notice to the person served was complete when it was not. Two, they were ignored when they were not. Three, they informed persons, quote, apparently in charge of the locations that they were being served on behalf of Mr. Miscavige when they did not. Four, they left the service packet with a person apparently in charge of Mr. Miscavige's office or usual place of business when they did not. Indisputable evidence demonstrates that plaintiff's process service statements made under penalty of perjury of proper service On Mr. Miscavige are fraudulent. And then they go through and talk about the fact that surveillance videos complete with audio recordings reveal that on December 7th and December 12th, the days that the service packets were thrown on the ground, the process servers never mentioned Mr. Miscavige's name and they never informed anyone, much less a person apparently in charge, that such persons were being served on behalf of Mr. Miscavige. Neither service packet was left with a person apparently in charge of Mr. Miscavige's office or usual place of business, and the process server was not ignored. Mr. Miscavige was not served. The motion to quash should be granted. And then it really lines out the exact same arguments that we saw the last time. And because it lines out the same arguments that we covered last time, I'm not going to cover them again, but I'm going to go to the plaintiff's response to this motion next. We're going to Leah Remini's opposition to the defendant's motion to quash filed on January 31st, 2024, stating that, quote, on August 2nd, 2023, plaintiff filed this action against defendants David Miscavige, Church of Scientology International and Religious Technology Center. Since that date, plaintiff has made great efforts to serve each of the three defendants, including defendant Miscavige. Defendant Miscavige is an individual who serves as chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center. From August 23rd through December 23rd, plaintiff has made diligent efforts to locate Miscavige for personal service and to ascertain a mailing address for him at which waiver requests and notices may be sent. See the declaration. On September 22nd, 2023, December 7th, 2023, and December 12th, 2023, Defendant Miscavige was served by substitute service in compliance with California Code of Civil Procedure 415.20B. And again, this is what the defense is saying is improper and did not happen. They say that the summons, complaint, and other filings were also mailed to Miscavige at two known addresses on those dates. Because plaintiff properly served Miscavige and because there's no question that Miscavige has notice of this lawsuit, the court should deny the motion to quash service and summons a complaint. Defendant David Miscavige knows about the lawsuit. There's no argument that he doesn't know about the lawsuit. He is specially appearing saying I've not been served, I'm not part of the lawsuit, but to do that you have to know that you're a part of the lawsuit. This is not a situation where someone never gets served, the court issues a default judgment and years later they're like, "Um, excuse me, I was never served." This is not that situation where he is unaware of what's going on. Statement of facts. Defendant Miscavige is the sole defendant of the three in this case, to challenge service with a motion to quash. True. Plaintiff has undertaken numerous steps to confirm all known residential, business, and mailing addresses of defendant. In conducting research, plaintiff became aware that defendant has a policy and practice of evading service of process, a practice he engages in with the assistance of other Scientologists and their hired security personnel. These are all based on the 300-page declaration that we talk about. Based upon available information, Ms. Cavage is believed to reside at 6331 Hollywood Boulevard. It gives the suite number and believed to maintain a regular place of business at multiple locations outlined in the declaration. Plaintiff engaged Apex Legal Services to serve process upon Ms. Cavage. And over the course of five months, Apex took extraordinary measures to serve process on Ms. Cavage in accordance with the law. These measures, ultimately costing plaintiff nearly $10,000, were accomplished with the efforts of multiple process servers, making a total of 32 separate visits to nine different addresses on 16 separate dates. It's not like they tried to serve him once at one place and were like, good enough. 32 separate visits, nine different addresses, 16 different dates. That's a lot of work to try to serve someone. The declaration of Cameron Scott, which is filed concurrently, thoroughly details plaintiff's extensive service efforts and Miscavige's avoidance. And then they go through the legal standard on the motion to quash. The burden is on the plaintiff to prove by a preponderance of the evidence the validity of the service. That's where this 300-page declaration comes in for Rimini to show that her legal team has gone above and beyond trying to serve David Miscavige, he actually does have notice they have been reasonably diligent and therefore the motion to quash should be dismissed and the court should determine that he has been served by substitute service of process. Then they quote the California Code of Civil Procedure, when personal delivery cannot be completed with reasonable diligence, substitute service is allowed. Quote, ordinarily, two or three attempts at personal service at a proper place should fully satisfy the requirement of reasonable diligence and allow substitute service to be made. Substitute service can be accomplished by leaving a copy of the summons and complaint at a person's dwelling house, usual place of abode, usual place of business, or usual mailing address with a competent member of the household or a person apparently in charge who is at least 18 years of age and is informed of the contents of the papers. Thereafter, a serving party must also mail a copy of the summons and complaint, and they are arguing that that's what they did. They go on to say, quote, the service dodging of Miscavige and his agents in this matter is a continuation of his long standing practice of electing procedural gamesmanship over participation in litigation. This court, like those before it, should reject such efforts and deem service upon Miscavige accomplished. Furthermore, Miscavige's deliberate avoidance tactics leave him absent any claims of lack of notice. A person who deliberately conceals himself to evade service of process is scarcely in a position to complain over much of unfairness in substitute methods of notification enacted by the legislature to cope with such situations. It goes on to state that in the present case, before resorting to substitute service, plaintiff attempted personal service with exceedingly more than quote, reasonable diligence required by the statute. Though two or three attempts at personal service would have been sufficient, plaintiff made a total of 24 attempts in this case. And we're going to go through the declaration just a little bit to show you the lengths that they went to. Conclusion. They say for the foregoing reasons, plaintiff respectfully requests that this court deny Cavage's motion to quash service of summons and complaint and deem him served by substitute service. Alternatively, should the court deem the substitute service inefficient, plaintiff requests that the court grant plaintiff's application for publication filed January 30th, meaning that they would then serve him by publication, meaning just publishing, you're being sued. I don't know if we really need to publish it. He's specially appearing to fight service because he knows the lawsuit is ongoing. We're going to take a brief look at the declaration with regard to the efforts made for service in this case. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Honey Love. I know they're known for their shapewear, and this Valentine's season, whether you're looking for a little something for your night out or looking for something special for your night in, Honey Love has you covered. When I say don't sleep on their sleepwear, I mean it literally. It is my favorite sleepwear that I have ever found. It keeps everything contained and is comfy and keeps me cool at night, but also looks sassy, so I don't feel like I'm just schlubbing it in a holy tank top. Yes, I've done that for years. So it actually feels good to take off your shapewear at the end of the night and put on the sleepwear that makes you feel sassy. And they've got you covered when you need to use the restroom because nobody wants to be in a stall on a busy evening trying to fight your shapewear off and on. Honeylove has that covered too. So not only will you feel contained, but not confined you're also going to be able to use the restroom with ease. So from sculptware to bras to tanks to leggings, Honey Love has something for you. And because you're an Emily Show listener, a little extra something to show yourself some love and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash lawnard. Use our exclusive link down below to get 20% off at honeylove.com slash lawnard. After your purchase, they're going to ask where you heard about it. Please let them know from the Emily show. Let's get back to today's episode. Let's take a look at the 300 page declaration filed in support of Plaintiff Leah Remini's opposition to defendant David Miscavige's motion to quash service of subpoena in this case. We're not gonna go through all 344 pages. Don't worry, it's not gonna be a seven-hour episode. We're gonna go through a brief bit of it. I, Cameron Scott, am an attorney at Motley Rice. I represent plaintiff in this action. I make the declaration based on my personal knowledge. And this is the lawyer's declaration of everything they did to try to serve David Miscavige, who I will probably refer to as defendant most of the time. Plaintiff served defendant by substitute service. Defendant is the only of the three defendants in this case to challenge service with a motion to quash. Below are the details. From June 2023 to December 2023, I have made diligent efforts and attempts to locate Miscavige personally to locate his place of residence and business and obtain a mailing address for him, including the following. Searches of public records databases, engagement of Apex Legal Services, a process-serving and private investigation company to conduct research and surveil locations, reviewing dockets and pleadings in other cases in which Miscavige was named as a defendant for details as to his whereabouts, and past service attempts, reviewing corporate filings accessible through the California Secretary of State for Religious Technology Center and the Church of Scientology, requesting his contact information from the registered agent for the Church of Scientology, we we saw those emails in the last, the last time I covered this, they got spicy and we covered a bit of that the last time where the attorney's like, you are welcome to tell us his email or his, his home address. And uh, they were disinclined to acquiesce to that request. It goes on to say searching public sources such as news media and blogs for his location, reviewing Scientology websites and promotional literature for scheduled appearances, interviewing individuals who have information on his possible whereabouts, corresponding with current and former counsel who are believed to know of his whereabouts. In addition to reviewing APEX public record searches, I've conducted public record searches using Westlaw and Lexis. The reports generated include information from telephone service providers, email address records, Credit bureaus, driver's license, voter registration records, asset registration, property title records, bankruptcy filing, criminal history records, lawsuits, marriage records, and divorce records. I've reviewed the public records, searched through Westlaw and Lexis, and the report prepared by our private investigator, and each reflect 6331 Hollywood Boulevard as the most recent known or likely address attached as Exhibit A is a true and correct copy of the re- reports. I'm not going to go through all those reports. I reviewed records from the Registrar of Actions for Pinellas County, Florida, attached as Exhibit B. A true and correct copy from the Registrar of Actions in Pinellas County, Florida shows that Ms. Cavage received traffic citations in 1991 and 1995, which list his address as that 6331 Hollywood Boulevard address. I reviewed dockets and jurisdictions in which Ms. Cavage has been named as a defendant, determined whether his address is revealed in affidavits, pleading, or other court documents. He declared in a sworn statement on September 24th, 1999 in Wallersham versus Church of Scientology filed in the Superior Court of the state of California that he is a resident of the state of California. That's attached. He declared in a sworn statement on August 28, 2013, in another case where he was or is being sued um, in Texas, that he is a resident of the state of California and that his address is 1710 Ivar Avenue, Los Angeles. Ivar Avenue, just for note, Ivar, the Ivar Avenue address and the um, Hollywood Boulevard address are two sides of the same building on a corner. So there are doors on both sides. Those are two addresses for the same building. It is a Scientology building on um, Hollywood Boulevard. On March 4th, 2020, in Bixler versus Church of Scientology, filed in the Superior Court of Los Angeles, Ms. Cabbage, in his reply in support in motion to quash, service a summons and complaint to strike plaintiff's proof of service as fraudulent, did not challenge the purported substitute service based on the location of alleged attempts at service. Plaintiff submitted proofs of substituted service for Ms. Cabbage at 6331 Hollywood Boulevard and 1710 Ivar Avenue. So What the plaintiff is saying is in these other lawsuits, he's not challenged service at this location. And then they're attaching all of that, which is why this declaration is so long. On March 16th, 2020, in Jane Doe versus Church of Scientology Flag Service Organization, filed in the Circuit Court of Miami Dade County, Defendant Religious Technology Center acknowledges in their motion for protective order that RTC is a California corporation with its principal place of business in California and that this effectively establishes that RTC is, quote, unquote, at home in California, not Florida, and that's not subject to personal jurisdiction in Florida. So to get out of a lawsuit in Florida, they said, hey, we're a California company. Uh, we belong in California. So all of these lawsuits are being compiled to say, where was he served in these other lawsuits? There is a declaration of Warren McShane signed on December 27th, 2022, filed in Baxter versus Miscavige another case filed in Florida in which he states that Ms. Cabbage is a resident of California and that Religious Technology Center withholds California income tax for Miscavige and has done so since Miscavige joined RTC. So they have gone through all of these other lawsuits and declarations to say that this Scientology building on 6331 Hollywood Boulevard is either his residence or his likely place of business where he can be served. It goes on to say that the Church of Scientology website lists 6331 Hollywood Boulevard as its headquarters. The Scientology headquarters building sits at the corner of 6331 Hollywood Boulevard and 1710 Ivor Avenue, and Scientology maintains an entrance to the building at each address. Attached is a Google Maps image showing the Church of Scientology international building location on each corner. And then it goes on to list those addresses and how many times the different process servers went out to those addresses and the fact that the addresses have cameras and like um, speaker boxes when you ring the bell and that the process servers went and rang the bells to gain entry into the buildings and they say were ignored um, because they rang 15 plus times and no one answered the doors for them. And it goes on to list out the 23 different attempts to serve David Miscavige on those different dates. So with all of that, when I say that this case is going to be uh, lengthy and litigated, two of the defendants are in the process of an anti-slap motion trying to get parts of this case and allegations made and the case dismissed, ultimately hoping to get some of the causes of action in the case dismissed while the third defendant is still fighting service of process. When that defendant gets brought into the case, it's just as likely that he will start the process of the anti-slap motions as well. So we're going to see, as I said previously, voluminous litigation in this case, and I'll keep covering it. There's two upcoming court dates, and we'll see what happens. This particular judge in Los Angeles hasn't been um, denying every media request. So there will be or should be media in the courtroom if they're inclined to be there. The court seems to be amenable to allowing people in the courtroom to watch the proceedings, to report what happens, even to live tweet out what happens. And I've seen CBS granted access to record. So we will see what happens in these upcoming hearings. So with that, let us switch gears to another anti-slap motion and talk about the Lizzo lawsuit. For those of you who aren't super familiar with the Lizzo lawsuit from her three dancers, because the court gives such a great road so far, we're going to go to the court's tentative after we go to the court's order in this case. This is from January 31st, 2024. In the Ariana Davis et al. versus Big Girl Big Touring, a Delaware corporation, Lizzo and the rest of the companies. nature of proceedings ruling on submitted matter special motion to strike that means that this was argued on a different court date and the court took it under submission to consider their ruling the court having taken this matter under submission on december 4th 2023 for hearing on special motion to strike under ccp 425.16 the anti-slap motion of plaintiff's complaint pursuant to california civil code 425.16 now rules as follows The court issues its ruling as detailed in the document titled tentative order granting in part and denying in part defendants, and then it lists the companies and Lizzo, special motion to strike portions of plaintiff's complaint. The special motion to strike filed by all of the defendants is granted in part clerk to give notice. So we're going to go to the court's tentative ruling and take a look at what was granted and what impact that has. This is the court's tentative ruling from January 31st, 2024, Ariana Davis, Crystal Williams, and Noel Rodriguez versus Big Girl, Big Touring, Inc., Melissa Jefferson, aka Lizzo, and Shirley Quigley. The court gives us a really good background, so we're going to go with the court's background. Plaintiffs filed this employment discrimination action against defendants, Big Girl, Big Touring, BGBT, Melissa Jefferson, Lizzo, and Shirley Quigley. Quigley, collectively defendants. According to the operative complaint, plaintiffs are professional dancers who worked with Lizzo, and then there's a footnote one. The court typically does not cite from the complaint on a special motion to strike. However, the parties and witnesses' recollections of events vary so widely that it is best to focus on the allegations to provide context for the lawsuit. This is not meant to imply that the court takes the allegations as true. That said, the various declarations plaintiffs submitted in support of their opposition papers are consistent with the allegations cited herein, although... The declarations defendants submitted in support of their motion are not consistent with the more troubling allegations. Because, in the special motion to strike context, the court for prong two discussed below must take evidence in opposition to the motion as true and draw all reasonable inferences in the opposing party's favor. The court recites from the complaint and plaintiff's declarations here. Defendants deny many of these allegations, and the court is, of course, making no factual findings. As to any of it. That is a very unique footnote that goes on for two pages, which is why I was immediately invested in this court's ruling because the court says that the recollections of events vary so widely, which means how the plaintiffs see things and how the defendant sees things are so at odds with each other um, that the court is trying to make it clear by just citing what the plaintiffs are alleging. Remember here, the moving party is the defense. So when assumptions need to be made in favor of the non-moving party, that is the plaintiffs that are suing Lizzo. It goes on to say, plaintiffs allege that in March 2021, Davis and Williams first met Lizzo as contestants on her reality show called Watch Out for the Big Girls, W-O-F-T-B-G. Is it really easier? Is W-O-F-T-B-G easier than Watch Out for the Big Girls? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's easier to say, Your Honor. The show centered on contestants competing for the opportunity to join Lizzo as dancers on her tours and live performances. Plaintiffs contend that Rodriguez was hired around May 2021 by Lizzo and BGBT, the touring company, for a music video and later as part of a performance group that supported Lizzo during live shows. While Rodriguez was working on a music video for Lizzo, she claims she was approached with another job opportunity and would have required her to work during the same period as rehearsals for Lizzo's shows. Plaintiffs claim that Rodriguez spoke with Lizzo's tour manager, Carolina Gulieta, about taking this opportunity, to which Gulieta stated, do you want the job or not, implying that Rodriguez should not take other jobs while hired as a tour dancer. Plaintiffs Davis and Williams contended they were first introduced to defending Quigley in or around August 2021, which is when filming for W-O-F-T-B-G began. Quigley was allegedly vocal about her religious beliefs and purportedly proselytized whenever the opportunity arose. Plaintiffs assert that Quigley was particularly interested in Davis and preached to her about their shared Christian identity. After finding out about Davis's virginity while filming, Quigley purported to make a point of bringing it up in the following months and sharing it in interviews and on social media without Davis's permission, which just gives me the ick. Plaintiff alleged that one of the requirements for WOFTBG was a nude photo shoot that made some contestants uncomfortable, including Davis. Davis claims she did not want to be photographed nude, but felt she would be sent home if she refused or did not perform well. Are you guys seeing similar claims? Not the nude photo shoot, but similar Similar allegations when we talk about the stuff going on in the Bravo world where individuals are saying, I felt pushed to do these things. I wasn't explicitly told to do these things, but I felt like it was encouraged by production because otherwise I might not have a job as a housewife or cast member in future seasons. It's similar here where it's we were not told to do it, but we felt like if we refused to do it, then we would lose this opportunity. Davis claims she broke down in tears from the stress and was eventually allowed to participate partially clothed. Plaintiffs assert that both Williams and Davis were chosen to be part of the dance team accompanying Lizzo on tour. Plaintiffs performed with Lizzo from September 2021 to April 2022. In April 2022, plaintiff began preparing for Lizzo's The Special Tour and worked closely with Quigley, the captain of the dance team. Plaintiffs state that Quigley continued to proselytize to everyone around her regarding Christianity and sexuality. She purportedly derided those who engaged in premarital sex, spoke about her masturbation habits, spoke about her sexual fantasies, and would simulate oral sex on a banana, which made plaintiffs uncomfortable. There's a lot in that sentence, Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. She derided those who were having premarital sex and then went to talk about nothing but sex. Plaintiffs contend that Quigley continued to minister to them, keeping tabs on Davis's virginity, preaching at Rodriguez for being a non-believer, interrogating Davis about her religious beliefs, and becoming upset if Davis disagreed. Quigley was allegedly not the only one, however, as others in supervisory roles at BGBT would allegedly have prayer circles prior to rehearsals and performances. Plaintiffs state that while the prayer circle was not an official requirement, it soon became clear to them that the failure to participate was looked down upon. Rodriguez reportedly did not want to lead the prayer, but was pressured to do so. Plaintiff claimed that complaints regarding Quigley's proselytizing and instances of sexual harassment by bus drivers went unaddressed by management, although management claims to the contrary, especially as to the bus driver. After the domestic portion of the tour came to an end in November 2022, plaintiffs began to look for work to fill the time until the European leg of the tour was to begin in February 2023. Because BGBT preferred plaintiffs took no additional jobs, it instructed plaintiff's agents to place plaintiffs on a quote-unquote soft hold, meaning plaintiffs would not be paid during this gap period but also could not take other work. Plaintiffs assert that due to the soft hold, they became financially dependent on the income from the tour. Plaintiffs learned, however, that other members of the tour were on a retainer, meaning they were paid a portion of their tour rate during the breaks in exchange for not taking other jobs the dance team began discussing how to negotiate for a retainer. Plaintiffs contend they performed with Lizzo at her Amsterdam show in February 2023. After the show, Lizzo invited the dancers out with her for the night. Any of this ringing a bell yet? For some of you who have followed this case, you're like, oh, yes, Amsterdam and the bananas. Yes, that's that's the portion that we're getting to. But a judge had to write this, so I, I just... A, I want to know who this judge's research attorney is that had to sit down with this judge and talk about simulating sex with bananas in Amsterdam. I, I really want to be a fly on the wall. Plaintiffs concede that attendance was not mandatory, but they assert that those who attended such events were favored by Lizzo, selected to perform with her more regularly, and enjoyed better job security. Plaintiffs contend that Davis and Rodrigo were rushed into accepting Lizzo's invitation without knowing that the club was Bananan Bar, where patrons interacted with nude performers. Putting it mildly, Davis and Rodriguez claimed that they tried to withdraw after learning about the club but were unable to do so. They asserted that things got out of hand when they reached the club. Specifically, Lizzo and others allegedly pressured Davis into touching the naked breast of one of the performers, despite Davis expressing her discomfort both verbally and physically. Later, when the tour was in Paris, Lizzo invited the dancers out to the Crazy Horse without explaining that this was a nude cabaret bar. I mean, it's called the Crazy Horse. Do you need to define it? It's the Crazy Horse in Okay. The judge left out a lot of detail. (laughs) Your Honor, well played. Plaintiffs state that about March 9th, 2023, the dance team submitted a request for a retainer of 50% of their weekly tour rate during the soft hold periods to BGBT and Lizzo, a number consistent with what some of the others were getting. On March 16th, the dance team received an email from Ashley Joshi, a BGBT accountant, who offered a retainer. They asked for money while they were on a soft hold, and then they were paid. In this email, Joshi scolded the dancers for their unacceptable and disrespectful behavior on tour, but did not explain specifically what behavior triggered the comment, and informed the dance team that such behavior was grounds for termination. Plaintiffs point out that the dance team is comprised of full-figured women of color, and plaintiffs assert that only they were spoken to in this way, meaning other groups were allegedly treated differently. While BGBT did eventually agree to a larger retainer, management allegedly treated the Black members of the dance team differently than others, calling the Black dancers lazy and unprofessional, stereotypical tropes purportedly aimed at deriding plaintiffs based on their race. On April 20th, 2023, the dance team had an eight-hour rehearsal scheduled. At the end of the rehearsal, Lizzo appeared. Lizzo purportedly stated that the dancers were not up to par and accused them of drinking before shows. Plaintiffs contend Lizzo made them re-audition for their spots, and the eight-hour rehearsal extended to a grueling 12 hours. Plaintiffs assert that the re-audition process was brutal. Davis allegedly had to use the restroom, but felt she might be fired if she left the stage at any point in the audition. Plaintiff State Davis eventually lost control of her bladder, but still feeling termination, danced in her soiled clothing until she could run off and change during a break. On April 21st, Lizzo called another meeting with the dance team to reiterate none of their jobs were safe and reiterated that drinking before shows was prohibited. Plaintiffs assert that Williams spoke up and said the dancers did not drink before shows, which resulted in tension between Lizzo, management, and Williams with the rejoinder that the declining quality of the performance was the reason for the accusation. The same day, Davis was called into a meeting with Lizzo and the choreographer, Tanisha Scott, during which they questioned whether she was struggling with something because she seemed less committed to her position. Davis claims the two pressured her for an explanation about her personality changes. However, these comments were purportedly really focused on Davis's weight gain, given Lizzo's statements after a music festival on that specific point. Davis disclosed that she had anxiety and depression and had been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Davis reiterated her commitment to the tour, but Lizzo and Scott allegedly dismissively offered her time off for therapy. Plaintiffs assert that Davis felt that if she accepted the offer, she would be seen as too weak for the tour, so Davis declined, but she felt it was the only way she could keep her job. It should be noted that defendants contend there was no hidden motive and that they were only trying to be supportive and accommodate Davis. Williams was terminated on or around August 26, 2023 in the hotel lobby by Gulieta. Under the guise of budget cuts, Rodriguez later questioned Gulieta as to her decision to terminate Williams in a public place. On April 27th, the dancers were called into a meeting with Lizzo purportedly to discuss notes. However, according to plaintiff, once in the room, Lizzo addressed Williams' firing and demanded to know who questioned her decision to fire Williams. Plaintiff state that Lizzo said she preferred that the dance team did not socialize with Williams before she left. Lizzo also allegedly added that weight gain was the cause of termination and supposedly looked at Davis. Plaintiffs claim that Davis suffers from an eye condition that causes her to sometimes be disoriented in stressful situations. And so in such situations, she had a habit of making recordings so she can review them later. Davis claims that she recorded this particular meeting due to its stressful nature. According to Davis, the recording was done in order to mitigate any issues that might be caused by her disability. Plaintiff contends that the dancers were called into an emergency wardrobe fitting on May 3rd. They were made to hand in their phones when they arrived. Plaintiffs assert that Lizzo then entered and furiously stated she knew someone had recorded the prior meeting. She purportedly threatened to go person by person to learn who made the recording, but before she actually did so, Davis admitted to recording it. Davis explained she wanted a copy of the notes Lizzo had given and that she already had deleted the recording. Plaintiffs state that Davis was fired on the spot, According to defendants, Davis admitted not only recording the prior meeting, but sending the recording to Williams, which was a violation of Davis's contract, and that is why Davis was fired. As Lizzo was leaving, Rodriguez claims to have stopped her and state she did not appreciate how Lizzo handled the situation and resigned on the spot. Plaintiffs assert that Lizzo then aggressively approached Rodriguez, cracking her knuckles, bawling her fist, and stating, you're lucky, you're so fucking lucky. Rodriguez contends she feared that Lizzo was going to hit her and would have done just that if other dancers had not intervened. Plaintiffs state that the other dancers escorted Rodriguez back to her room due to their fear that Lizzo might return. Plaintiffs contend that Davis was forced to stay behind in the meeting room by Lizzo's security guard. Under the watch of the tour's co-manager, the guard allegedly went through Davis's cell phone and iCloud to confirm whether the recording had been deleted. I have huge problems with this. Really, really do. You can't, like, hold someone and force them to have their cell phone searched. Currently before the court is the defendant's special motion to strike the complaint plaintiffs oppose. This matter was previously before the court on November 22nd. At that point, the court requested the parties provide additional authority interpreting the language in Lyle versus Warner Brother Productions regarding the viability of sexual harassment claims where no disparate treatment or impact was alleged. The plaintiffs have submitted their list of cases and the matter is now ripe for resolution, evidentiary issues. And this is where the court gets spicy. Thank you to our sponsor, Shopify. Not only do they make the Law Nerd Shop possible, they support this podcast, but they make it easy for you to activate any e-commerce solution or to sell things locally and in person. Shopify is a global e-commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from launch your shop online to the first real-life store, all the way to did we just hit a million dollars? Shopify's there to help you grow. And Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average than compared to other commerce platforms. And Shopify plugs in to all of the social shopping solutions you're looking for. Whether it's on YouTube or through Instagram or Facebook, those integrations are super easy on Shopify's platform. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce, including brands like mine, Rothy's and Allbirds. Plus, their award-winning help is there every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow on Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lawnard. Remember, that's all lowercase. Just go to shopify.com slash lawnard and grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lawnard. Get ready to start hearing this. Defendants submitted 20 declarations with their moving papers. That was followed by plaintiff's evidentiary objections to each of those declarations. Remember the court in the last episode I did talking about Scientology where the minute order literally said enough is enough? This court just put it in their ruling. And in reply, defendants responded to each of the objections to their declarations and lodged their own objections. As defendants are likely aware, the number of declarations submitted here was unnecessary. One declaration by a person with personal knowledge Detailing the relevant situation is sufficient on a motion where the standard for summary judgment apply. The court observes that defendants emphasize the fact that they submitted 20 declarations in reply. But this is not a numbers game. As long as plaintiffs submit one declaration that disputes the material facts in defendants 20 declarations, the burden on the second prong is satisfied. Accordingly, the number of declarations is of no moment to the court at this stage. Indeed, even at trial, jurors are instructed not to, quote, make any decision simply because there were more witnesses on one side than the other. If you believe it is true, the testimony of a single witness is enough to prove a fact. How many times have I said that in closing argument? A lot. I've used the testimony of one single witness is enough to prove a fact. The court goes on to say that is all more pertinent here, where, as discussed below, the court cannot weigh the evidence as jurors must. The court can make an educated guess as to why so many declarations were filed. The court would ask that such not reoccur unless there is some kind of legal justification for it. Legal is italicized. <laughs> Here's what it's giving for me it's giving you did this for PR, you put in 20 declarations to get all of your side out in court filings, but it was not legally justified or needed. That's my reading between the lines. The court said no more need be said on this point at present. So the court said do not submit 20 declarations to me in the future. And this is different than a motion for summary judgment. The court is not weighing the facts in this case and determining these facts outweigh those facts. We're going to get to the standard here in just a minute because the court's not done talking to Lizzo's attorneys yet. Equally troubling. Defendant's approach resulted in an avalanche. Yep. In an avalanche of evidentiary objections by plaintiffs. The court has reviewed the objections. The vast majority are at least partly made on the basis of relevance. The court disfavors such objections. I don't use disfavors enough in my everyday life. I need to start doing it. I need to start telling my kids, I disfavor it when you fight me at bedtime. Strongly disfavored when you lodge objections as to bedtime. Strongly disfavored. By definition, If the proffered evidence is irrelevant, then it can have no part in the court's analysis, objection or no. On the other hand, if the evidence is relevant, then the objection is not well taken. This is not to say that the evidence in question is in fact relevant and the material to the court's analysis. It is only to say that if it is discussed below, then by definition, the court finds that it is relevant, although not necessarily weighty or dispositive. If it is not discussed below, then it forms no dispositive part of the court's reasoning and the objection is moot. The parties should refrain from making relevance or 352 objections and motions in the future absent some good reason to do so. And then in parentheses says, And interestingly, a relevance objection is never waived in motion practice. It is error for the court to consider evidence that has no probative value, whether or not an objection is made. The court is like, let me do my job. You stop it. I'm going, I'm going to do my job. So what I need you to do is file less shit, literally say less. Aside from that, the court will not rule on the individual objections. The court's like, if I mention it, I considered it. If I don't mention it, I didn't. But please stop. You're not going to bury me in motion work. Aside from that, the court will not rule on individual objections. Many of the objections are to immaterial evidence. So you're objecting to shit that doesn't even matter. Plaintiffs are reminded of our Supreme Court statement in Reed versus Google that only meritorious objections should be raised, and even then, only to evidence that makes a difference. Here, the objections do not meet that standard and constitute the, quote, blunderbuss objections to virtually every item of evidence that the Reed Court explicitly warned against. Any meritorious objections are lost within the pages of unmeritorious objections. (laughs) So the judge has said say less to the plaintiff, and say less to the defense, and said that all of the meritorious objections were lost by the scattershot approach of objecting to literally every fucking thing. It goes on to say this is not to say that the court has accepted defendants' evidence carte blanche. Many of the declarations contain hearsay and statements without foundation or personal knowledge. The court has not considered statements that suffer from these defects. But that does not leave a hole in defendant's evidence for generally there was at least some evidence for each of the material points made by the defense and the court does not weigh the evidence at this stage. Defendants also filed evidentiary objections in reply. The court declines to rule on defendants' numerous objections to immaterial evidence for the same reason. With that said, where the material portions of the declaration suffer from issues on personal knowledge like one plaintiff attesting to something another plaintiff experienced, the gap is easily filled because the plaintiff with personal knowledge also submitted a declaration detailing their point of view. The declarations are not conclusory as they provide sufficient explanation for why plaintiffs felt the way they did or perceive certain actions as pretextual. For the same reasons, the declarations are not speculative, most of the hearsay objections lack merit, and some statements are by people authorized by the party to make the statements. See evidence code 1222. Those that have merit are rarely to material evidence. The court is so annoyed with the attorneys on both sides that the court has reminded both sides, do not waste my time with pointless objections to shit that doesn't matter. Like, you need to see the forest through the trees at this point of litigation. This should not be a carpet bombing approach. You need to pick your strategic targets of shit that matters and only, only object to that. And the court then gets into talking about objections made to the declarations because plaintiffs do not specifically state where they executed the declaration. They only put, I declare under penalty of perjury for the state of California that the above is true and correct. And the court is not throwing out the declarations based on that signature. Here's my suggestion to the courts, of the state of California, with the law according to Emily. If you just used further affiant saith not, like the state of South Carolina, maybe we would avoid these issues because it's just so powerful. I mean, it's it it just. It just lacks drama. I declare under penalty of perjury for the state of California that the above is true and correct. Does not have the same weight and chutzpah as further affiant saith not. That's my suggestion to the courts in the state of California. Maybe we just change maybe we just change the penalty of perjury declaration. Just a suggestion. Either way, the court's not throwing out the declarations. We get to the legal standards. The California legislature has authorized that a special motion to strike may be filed in lawsuits that seek to, quote, chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for the redress of grievances. The code provides, quote, a cause of action against a person arising from any act of that person in furtherance of the person's right to petition Or free speech under the United States Constitution or the California Constitution in connection with a public issue shall be subject to a special motion to strike unless the court determines that the plaintiff has established that there is a probability that the plaintiff will prevail on the claim. That's the two parts of this test. We're going to go over them briefly. I've gone over them in a lot of other cases. Almost all the California kind of defamation cases and cases coming out of action and speech at some point involve a anti slap slap motion. Slap being strategic litigation against public participation. The court goes on to say, accordingly, the code is based on a two step process for determining whether the SMS, not text message, special motion to strike should be granted. First, the court decides whether the defendant made a threshold showing that the challenge claims or causes of action arise from protected activity. Quote, a defendant meets this burden by demonstrating that the act underlying the plaintiff's Cause fits in one of the categories spelled out in the section, including free speech. The Supreme Court has summarized the analysis as follows. At that stage, we said the moving party must identify the acts alleged in the complaint as it asserts are protected and what claim for relief are predicated on them. In turn, the court should examine whether those acts are protected and supply the basis for any claims. It does not matter that other unprotected acts may also have been alleged within what has been labeled. A single cause of action, these are disregarded at this stage. If the defendant makes that threshold showing, then the burden shifts to the plaintiff to establish a likelihood of prevailing on the complaint, which has sometimes been referred to as a minimal merit. So you have to show, one, that the activity being sued for, the shit the defendant's alleged to have done, arises out of protected activity. And if it does, then the plaintiff has to show that they are, you know, reasonably likely to prevail on the complaint, that there is some minimal merit to it. And the whole purpose of this is to stop complaints that are just seeking to bully people into silence when they assert their um, rights to petition government, First Amendment rights to free speech, and the like. It's to cut that case off before it even goes to discovery, which can really End a case in its tracks before it even gets started, but that's the point. End the case before it even gets to discovery. This can be difficult when people who have less financial means are suing those with greater financial means to not get stuck in this anti-slap process and have their case cut out from under them before they even get discovery. It is truly a double-edged sword. It goes on to say the burden on the plaintiff is like the burden imposed to defeat a summary judgment motion. The plaintiff must submit admissible evidence showing that it can prevail. And now we're going to get to the court's ruling and analysis. Defendants move to strike paragraphs of the complaint, and then it lists them all. And the reason that this is done in the anti-slap is if you pull those particular paragraphs out, if they get struck, there might not be enough left. To actually build a cause of action in the case can that cause of action can get dismissed. It goes on to say the allegations concern all nine causes of action and can be split into general categories of wrongful conduct as discussed below. If the motion is granted in full, if if the motion is granted in full, the court believes that there is nothing left of the complaint and that an outright dismissal would be in order. Acts in furtherance of the defendant's right to petition or free speech prong one. Defendants argue that the acts complained of in the complaint all consist of activity that is part of the creative process and therefore is protected. What constitutes a statement made in connection with the issue of public interest is the same under different subdivisions of the code, and there is another two-step test to determine this issue. First, we ask what is a public issue or in the public interest that the speech in question implicates. Here, The defendants insist that the television show and Lizzo's own fame are within the public interest. So the defense is arguing everything Lizzo does because she's so famous is within the public interest. So even what's going on behind the scenes at dance rehearsal or in the Bananen Bar in Amsterdam is all within the public interest because of her fame. Defendants point out that Lizzo's concerts, television shows, and public statements on certain issues are in the public interest due to her status as a major celebrity. Yes, it actually says major celebrity. The court agrees. In Nygaard, this court held that, quote, an issue of public interest is any issue in which the public is interested. In other words, the issue need not be, quote, unquote, significant to be protected by the anti-slap statute. It is enough that it is one in which the public takes an interest. Plaintiffs argue in opposition that Lizzo's status as a celebrity alone is insufficient because there can be no claimed public interest in cast meetings and outings, prayer groups, or things like that. Stripped out of context, plaintiffs are correct. But when the issue becomes Lizzo's cast meetings and outings, prayer groups, and things like that while on tour, the analysis is different. It is Lizzo's celebrity that elevates these perhaps mundane issues into those average citizens want to know more about. As to the second step defendants assert that acts that further the creative process are protected quote courts have held that acts that advance or assist the creation and performance of artistic works are acts in furtherance of the right to free speech for anti-slap purposes this is true but defendant's argument overstates the connection between certain acts and the creative process while many of these acts occurred during tour and in preparation for it that alone does not satisfy the second step and they're quoting the film on case The second step requires a consideration whether a defendant, through public or private speech or conduct, participated in or furthered the discourse that makes an issue one of public interest. What a court scrutinizing the nature of speech in the anti-slap context must focus on is the speech at hand rather than the prospects that such speech may conceivably have indirect consequences for an issue of public concern. Thus, while the court understands the argument and agrees that the fact that this case involves a well-known mega-celebrity brings a lot of conduct into constitutionally protected ambit, that would not otherwise be there. It is not without bound. The court must look closely at the actual things alleged and the evidence presented to determine if it is fairly within our outside of constitutionally protected speech or the public interest. So the court goes deeply into whether or not an outing to a bar in Amsterdam is part of the creative process and what is or isn't part of the creative process to bring that behavior within protected activity. So while things at dance rehearsal might, outings might not. The court believes this protection extends to providing feedback to dancers during various meetings as well as the re-audition process. All of this is part of creating the performance that the artist envisions in her head. The private meeting with Davis is protected too. As alleged and as evidence supports, the meeting centered around Davis's personality changes during the tour. Davis alleges that was feigned concern as a veiled reference to her weight gain. Maybe so, the court goes on to say, but the allegations still indicate this meeting was related to Davis's job performance on tour. Lizzo attests that she worried that the tour was too much for Davis and wanted to check in with her. This bears a relationship to Davis's health on tour, and according to even plaintiffs, Davis's job safety. It says that the soft hold and comments within the context of retainer negotiations are also protected. While dancers are on break between performances and not on retainer, tour management will sometimes be informed about dates dancers might be working on the tour in the future and will therefore ask the dancers to be placed on a quote-unquote soft hold for those dates. The negotiations for a soft hold retainer are protected because they concern staffing for the tour. Joshi's comments during negotiations are also protected because they communicate lax job performance during concerts and note that this is grounds for termination. The same applies to comments calling Black members of the dance team lazy, unprofessional, and snarky. The court goes on to say while the comments are alleged to be racist, the court cannot let plaintiffs' allegations of motive control the analysis on the first prong. On the first prong, the court must examine the conduct of defendants without relying on whatever improper motive the plaintiff alleges. As our Supreme Court reasoned in Navalier, the preamble to the statute does not reflect a purpose to protect the valid exercise of speech and petition rights, but the legislature's expression of, quote, a concern in the statute's preamble with lawsuits that chill the valid exercise of First Amendment rights does not mean that a court may read a separate proof of validity requirement into the operative section of the statute. These comments were purportedly made by management within the context of retainer negotiations on tour. Comments on job performance are in furtherance of the creative process. The prayer circle also passes the first prong, although in the court's mind, it is a closer call. There is more than one declaration indicating that this is industry practice or meant to settle nerves prior to a performance. And then they go on to quote, I'm usually backstage with the stage performance and Lizzo before each show. The group prayer led by Lizzo before the show is primarily a way for everyone to connect with one another more deeply and touch base in preparation for their performance, while also seeking protection and safety for everyone who put on the show and everyone attending. That bears a functional relationship to the creative process. Quigley's religious and sexual comments during rehearsals are more difficult. As noted above, plaintiff's allegations regarding Quigley's intent do not control, but even with that said, the court does not understand how the comments are connected to the creative process. Defendants generally argue that it's part of the creative process, which is fine to the extent these are comments made during the dance practice by a dance captain, but as plaintiffs point out in opposition, there has to be more. It is not enough that the comments were made during the general creative process these actions at issue must advance the creative process. There is nothing from the bare allegations regarding Quigley's comments about religion and sexuality that indicate they advance or assist the dancer's performance. Notably, not a single one of the 20 declarants states that the comments contributed to the creative process. They are comments on how this was part of, quote-unquote, girl talk that plaintiffs have taken out of context. And then the court quotes the declaration saying The reality is that we were part of a group of women who were together all the time, traveling, rehearsing, socializing, on tour, and we talked about, quote-unquote, girl talk, including things like our sexuality. We did not talk about this all the time, but it certainly was a topic that we covered. Quigley joined those conversations, too, but she certainly did not talk about sex, sexual acts, or sexual fantasies all the time. But she talked about it some of the time. The court goes on to say, but saying it is, quote-unquote, girl talk, or that plaintiffs are not telling the truth does not equate to furthering the creative process. Defendants have not met their burden as to this facet of the complaint. The same applies to Quigley's purported proselytizing during the tour. So the court has gone through each kind of line of allegations to talk about what is and is not part of the creative process with a fine tooth comb. The court goes on to say, the court also does not see the functional relationship between Banana Bar and Crazy Horse and the performances. Plaintiffs allege that this was voluntary in name, but not in reality for job security. Lizzo attests that these events are for team building so everyone can spend more time together in a relaxed environment. She adds that the Crazy Horse invitation was meant to inspire the dancers' creativity and improve their overall performance of the show. Lizzo notes that other major stars, such as Beyonce, have incorporated elements from the Crazy Horse show. Why are you bringing Beyonce into this? Like, leave, leave Beyonce, what? We're, uh, ma'am, the court is not sure how voluntary off-the-clock time at a club bears a functional relationship to performance of a set dance routine. Of course, the court understands it as a general matter in that seeing others can inspire a person to work harder or lead to new ideas. At least one declarant says these events helped improve the show because everyone could bond. But this activity was, according to defendants, voluntary. Not all the dancers were required to attend clubs to aid their performance of pre-choreographed numbers, given that the court is not sure how something that no one had to say no to is going to aid the creative process. Further, Lizzo's declaration as to her intent undercuts defendant's theory. Quote, to be frank, I was enjoying a night out at Banana Bar with friends and did not have any expectations about who would attend or how long they would stay. The functional relationship between this voluntary off-the-clock club activity and the concert performance is missing, footnote three. The court notes, though, that this is a close question. For that reason, the court addresses prong two as to these activities below in the margin. So even the court is like, I could see where you might argue to the appellate court that going to the all-nude club and the, the Bananan Bar might have some tangential relationship to a creative performance. So I'm not going to just cut it off at prong one. I'm going to say it was close but I'm still gonna go to prong twos. So the court is giving like the arguendo argument on this. Without more arguing with someone or attempting to hit them does not further the creative process. Given the above analysis, defendants satisfy their burden on the first prong in part, the motion is denied. However, to the allegations regarding Quigley's religious and sexual comments, management's failure to address sexual harassment issues, attendance at Bananen Bar and Crazy Horse, Davis's false imprisonment, and Lizzo's purported assault, This necessarily means the motion is denied to the eighth and ninth causes of action. The court does not discuss them on the second prong analysis. The burden shifts on the remaining allegations. So the court denied everything as to the alleged assault, the sexual harassment, management's failure to deal with the sexual harassment, the stuff at the banana bar, the crazy horse, and the false imprisonment, which of all of these, is a the false imprisonment's gonna be real difficult to get around unless they settle this. That's so much more cut and dry than the rest of these issues that are gonna get into a really difficult gray zone. So the court has gone through prong one and said, Some of these don't even meet prong one. So get out. Just absolutely get out. Then the burden shifts to the likelihood of success on prong two. Prong two being, hey, this is protected activity. So because it's protected activity, now the plaintiff needs to show that what the defendant did is still something they can sue over and they're likely to succeed. In summarizing the court's ruling with regard to the nude photo shoot, this is what the court has to say. These cases illustrate that there are a variety of ways to establish discrimination due to sex, but as is likely clear from the summaries, none of these evidentiary methods apply here. There is no indication of any sexual interest in the plaintiffs nor any widespread sexual favoritism, so those evidentiary issues are closed. There is no evidence indicating that plaintiffs and Davis in particular have been treated differently due to their sex or that men would have been treated differently as to the portions of the motion that made it to prong two. Nor a single one of the plaintiffs' declarations state as much or even supports that inference nor is there any evidence indicating that the female defendants were motivated by a general hostility to women in dealing with plaintiffs. Both cases that they cite are clear that there must be some evidence of discrimination due to sex, due to your sex, and there is none here. The motion is granted as to the nude photo shoot allegations in the first cause of action. And then there's a footnote, footnote five. To the extent that the nightclubs, though, Had passed Muster under prong one, plaintiffs would have succeeded on prong two. There was at least some evidence that males working for Lizzo were either not pressured to go to the clubs or at least not pressured to participate in any explicit activities while there. Accordingly, the declaration supporting that activity would have been sufficient even under the Lyle analysis, saying that with regard to the discrimination, you have to show that the discrimination is based on sex. And with regard to the nude photo shoot, Everyone participating was women. The defendants were women. They were not treated differently because they were women. And so those allegations about the nude photo shoot are getting cut out of the complaint because the anti-slap has been granted as to those allegations. The second allegation, failure to prevent sexual harassment. There can be no claim for failure to take reasonable steps necessary to prevent sexual harassment when an essential element of sexual harassment liability has not been established. The court then says the motion is granted as to the nude photo shoot allegations. Third cause of action, religious discrimination. The court rules. For purposes of this motion, though, the court believes that plaintiffs have put forth enough evidence to live to fight another day. The motion is denied as to this cause of action. And that's all of the stuff that went on with Quigley treating Uh, different members of the dance team differently based on their virginity status, based on their religion, based on her proselytizing to them. So those allegations all stay in the complaint. Fourth cause of action, failure to prevent religious discrimination. The court says the parties spend time arguing about Quigley's actions, but that is not material here, as her actions did not make it past the first prong. Had they, though, the court believes that the evidence would have been sufficient to overcome the motion. The motion is denied as to the prayer circle allegations. Fifth cause of action for racial discrimination. At issue are the comments that the dance team members were, quote, lazy, unprofessional, snarky, and generally had bad attitudes. Plaintiffs Davis and Williams present enough evidence to establish that they were subject to racial harassment. They establish that they are part of a protected class subject to unwelcome and racist comments that were mostly pointed at Black members of the dance team and that the harassment interfered with their work environment. These comments came about in response to the dancers' request for retainer, where Joshi berated them as well as other instances of such comments by management. In reply, defendants contend that a single email is not sufficient to establish a pervasive atmosphere of discrimination. The court notes, but it's not just a single email. Two plaintiffs also state that there was increased tension thereafter. Further, Davis states that BGBT management treated the Black members of the dance team wildly different than other members, for they called us lazy, unprofessional, and told us that we had bad attitudes. These remarks were made by white members in management. The implication is that it happened more than once. Whether that is true is a question for the trier of fact. The court says, frankly, this is not the strongest evidence of racial animus, impact on the working environment, or prevalence the court has ever seen. But in making inferences in the plaintiff's favor, it is sufficient. For example, Turning to the email, Joshi claims such a retainer is not industry standard for dancers, but it is for others. While Davis says a retainer is industry standard. That automatically sets up a triable issue of material fact on the industry standard, which leaves the question on differential treatment on the retainer an open question. Defendants' evidence that other Black dancers did not experience racism only establishes a trial issue of material fact. The court cannot accord more weight to one person's experience on this motion. The motion is denied. So that cause of action is going forward as to all of the allegations of racial discrimination. As to the disability discrimination causes of action, and this has to go along with the recording of the meeting by one of the plaintiffs. The court says the temporal proximity between the meeting and Davis's termination is interrupted by Davis's voluntary confession to recording the meeting and sending it to Williams and the immediate termination of her employment in response. The court emphasizes that the recording of the session would not be enough to overcome plaintiffs showing were that the only issue, but the fact that Davis admitted not only to recording the session, but also sending it to Williams, who had just been fired by Lizzo. And sending the recording to Williams had nothing to do with any disability. That was the purported reason for the termination, and Davis offers no explanation as to why the conduct would not be grounds for termination. So the recording is not the problem. The sending it to Williams is the problem, and therefore it undermines the entire claim, and the court grants the motion for that cause of action. With regard to the intentional interference with prospective economic advantage, this deals with the hold or the soft hold on the dancers so they can't take other jobs while waiting to go on tour, probably because they don't want them to get injured doing other things. The court says that plaintiffs have not established that the soft hold is wrongful in and of itself. To the extent that the soft hold was motivated by racial animus, that is dealt with in the FIHA claim discussed above, the racial claim we just talked about, the motion is granted as to this cause of action. Summary. So numerous causes of action did get cut. Certain allegations did get cut and the rest lives to fight another day. Here's the court's conclusion and summary. If your head is spinning, it's a lot, but not everything is going to go forward in this lawsuit against Lizzo and the company and the dance captain, which means the case is in a better position to potentially settle. Summary. This case presents a number of difficult issues, Although not every allegation involves protected activity or matters of public interest, many do. And the courts are rightfully wary of injecting themselves into the creative process. Speech, including entertainment or other forms of expression, are protected rights, and the law wisely disfavors chilling such conduct. Indeed, that is one of the drivers behind the legislature's enactment of the SMS. Also, it's one of the reasons it's so strong in California, because California is the hub of quite a lot of creativity. Um, And, you know, music and film and the rest of it. A lot of that's moving. But uh, when this was all written, it was. On the other hand, the fact that the alleged incidents take place in the entertainment or speech world is no shield of invulnerability or license to ignore laws enacted for the protection of California citizens. Finding the right balance is often no easy task, and this case is a perfect example. It is dangerous for the court to weigh in, ham-fisted, into constitutionally protected activity. But it is equally dangerous to turn a blind eye to allegations of discrimination or other forms of misconduct merely because they take place in a speech-related environment. The court has tried to thread this needle, although the court, being a trial court only, is well aware that this is likely only the first stop on this case's journey. And there is the court saying, I'm curious as to what the Court of Appeals will have to say about this. The court is saying, look, these are the interests I balanced. I have tried to thread the needle. Hello, appellate court. This will be appealed. We'll see what you have to say. The court also notes that although as discussed above the SMS standard is similar to the summary judgment standard, there are differences. Summary judgments comes after discovery. Some things are easy enough to allege or even declare, but may not stand up following a review of the documents or the crucible of deposition examination. As to the portions of this motion that were denied, the court does not mean to suggest that the defendants are precluded from bringing a summary judgment motion, either as a legal or even as a practical matter. Of course, the court does not know how it will rule. Should such a motion be brought, it is only to say that the court's mind as to what the record will show at that stage is open. In the light of the foregoing, the defendant's motion is granted as to the nude photo shoot allegations in the first and second causes of action, is granted as to the sixth cause of action for disability discrimination, and the seventh cause of action for intentional interference with prospective economic relationship. It is denied as to the remainder. So this is now a slightly less causes of action lawsuit, but the majority of the lawsuit is still going forward. Uh, What impact does it have? Well, it tailors down the lawsuit a bit, takes out some of the things they can talk about at trial. The um, allegations about the photo shoot gets pulled out. Whether or not the causes of action will stand without it, we will see if a demur is made. Um, alleging that on the complaint now it's insufficient facts to survive. Whether or not they will choose to do that or just choose to start their conversations about settling this matter, we will see. But this needed to happen first because from the defense's perspective, if the entire case gets thrown out on an anti-slap motion, they also get lawyer's fees. And of course, we saw the statements from Lizzo's attorneys saying that these were all overblown allegations, that these were um not true. So had they won the entire anti-slap, the lawsuit would be over, and they would have gotten attorneys fees. Now they have to face discovery, deposition, and the rest of it. And that might change the conversation with regard to settling this case a little bit. This ruling just came down January thirtieth, so it is still fairly new, and the parties are going to have to sort out what to do next. But I will be keeping an eye on it and circling back when we have more rulings from the court on this case. But partly granted, partly denied. If your head is spinning, this is civil litigation. Does this kind of stuff happen in criminal litigation? Not quite like this. No, no, this anti slap motion is specific to civil litigation. And hopefully you understand the two prongs of slap motions a little bit better. And for all the lawyers in the audience, I hope you enjoyed your self-study CLEs with this episode. And with that, nerds, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a nerd. I will talk to you soon. What do I need to say? I need to say the, the podcasty things. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May you be able to roll over in your sleep without your neck going into complete spasm and then taking days and days and days to recover. Maybe that's just really personal to me. I'm, I'm just wishing that to me. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one. You can stay up to date with everything I'm covering on our free iOS and Android app at lawnerdapp.com or search your app store for LawNerd. And you can also follow me on social media at The Emily D. Baker. Remember, I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I recap all of that for you in quick bits on Monday. And of course, The Emily Show drops on Wednesdays. Thanks for being a LawNerd.